Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 18 of Sexology Podcast. I'm so glad that you're tuning into this show today. We're going to talk about abortion. I know it's a very controversial topic. But I think that is something we absolutely need to discuss because there are not necessarily good scientific discussions around this topic. I was sharing that with my husband today and he was kind of shocked and I'm going to talk about it because we all know how controversial this topic is. But again, I'm very passionate about helping people to understand it more from the scientific perspective. This is something, this is a topic that is very close to my heart. When I was at 10th grade, I was attending this private high school and I had this classmate. She was this wonderful, lively girl. She was this this long-term relationship, I think like two, three years, which is a kind of a long-term for a high school relationships. One day I came to the class and I realized that she ended her life the night before she jumped off the bridge and it seems like she was pregnant. I attended her funeral. I know her sister shared with me that she was feeling so hopeless, so shameful and out of option that she didn't know what else she can do. And she was coming from this uh, very religious family and it was just devastating to see the consequences of her experiencing this hopelessness and helplessness. And her boyfriend also was attending the funeral and I could see how devastated, how defeated he looked. So from then on, I was kind of curious about 
how much people really know about their options and it kind of like planted seed about uh, women's reproductive rights and how important it is to have conversations about this topic. You know, we all have our opinions. That's why I wanted to find an expert who is and wrote about this topic, who is knowledgeable. And I was lucky that I got in contact with Dr. Deborah Mullen. Dr. Mullen is a psychologist, professor, and director of the Counseling Psychology Master's Program at Texas Women's University in Denton, Texas. She has published scholarship on women's sexuality, multiculturalism, reproductive justice, and professional development in various academic journals. Deborah is recognized as a certified sexuality educator by the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, and was the 2016 recipient of the Distinguished Graduate Faculty Award from her university. She's a co-chair for the revision of the American Psychological Association guideline for the psychological practice with girls and women and past chairperson of Division 17 Counseling Psychology section for the advancement of women. Here's my discussion with Dr. Deborah Mullen. Welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to have Dr. Deborah Mullen in our show today. Dr. Mullen is a psychologist, professor, and director of counseling psychology at master's program at Texas Women's University. I know I shared with you guys how excited I am, and we talked about uh, her experience in the field of psychology, and we're going to talk about women's reproductive rights. Dr. Mullen, welcome to our show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's absolutely an honor. So, you know, we hear a lot, especially in the news these days, about women's reproductive rights. So can you tell us what would that entail? Sure. Um, Actually, interestingly, the World Association for Sexual Health um, has a document your listeners can find online that lists sexual rights more broadly, including reproductive health um, and reproductive rights. So essentially, we um, all ought to be um, able to plan our reproductive uh, lives. And for most of us, that includes some degree of wanting to abstain from reproduction. Some people, of course, never want to have children. Uh, Most women in the U.S. prefer to have two, um, which means that we spend the vast majority of those three decades from about age 15 to 45 trying to control or limit our reproduction. And that's one of our, it's one of our rights. It's a, a right guaranteed to us by the amendments to the Constitution. And yet it's a right that's consistently under siege. Yeah, unfortunately, there are so many conversations. I have compassion for people who are like, you know, have the, are at the other part of the kind of like a spectrum. But I think it's very important to kind of talk about the myth and misconception because I feel part of the issue is because people don't have right kind of information, like scientific-based information. So what are some of the myth and misconception that you hear about abortion? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so many. Um, yeah, it's, it's really troubling, actually, because there are so many myths that are, you know, are, are clung to by people who, uh, who disseminate them. So, 
There are, are ones that fall under physical risks that, uh, that people mistakenly believe that um, abortion, when it's uh, performed as it most often is in the first trimester of pregnancy, is an unsafe procedure physiologically for the woman, when actually it's one of the safest medical procedures that anyone can have. It's much safer, for example, than uh, having a tooth extracted or a colonoscopy, other procedures that don't have near the amount of legislation or, you know, the, um, the efforts to try to, to limit it and restrict it. So there's a lot of uh, physiological uh, myths about it. There's myths about a link between abortion and breast cancer, which has been disproved by the leading cancer organizations in the country. There's a myth that abortion, having an abortion will impact negatively a woman's uh, later fertility. That is also not true. And, um, and more physiological. I'm, of course, a psychologist, so I'm really interested in the psychological myths. And there's lots of those as well, um, such as having an abortion um, increases a woman's likelihood of experiencing depression and anxiety and suicide and relationship problems and guilt and shame and grief. It's not that there are no negative consequences to abortion, but study after study, decade after decade, the thing we know the most is that when women seek abortions, the number one response that they have emotionally is uh, relief versus regret. So there's there's so many myths about abortion, and I'm, I'm just so glad to have the opportunity to dispel them um, with you today. Yeah, absolutely. And again, coming from a psychologist background, I can totally hear, I hear lots of these things. And I was sharing with our listener during the introduction that unfortunately, when I was younger in like high school, I lost a friend to suicide because she was pregnant and she didn't think like she had options. And just mm-hmm. like, you know, we're talking about increasing the chance of suicide when people are like going through the abortion. But I, can, I can totally see that again, it was my personal experience. So not helping like teens to kind of, and also adults with seeing their option that can cause them to feel hopeless and helpless. And that can be very limiting. Absolutely. I'm really sorry to hear about the loss that you experienced. Oh, thank you. That's, that's very kind of you to say that. And yes, it was a, a, was a long time ago, but it made me wonder even from the young age that reproductive rights are very important. And again, it's just something that I feel that people need to kind of be aware of their option and have good information about the, like the scientific aftermath of that. And I hear lots of people talking about, you know, PTSD. Is that something that science shows that like if you do the abortion in a safe day, you would experience PTSD later in life? I'm so glad you asked about that um, because I think that is another one of the really pervasive myths. So um, you probably know, and maybe your listeners do too, that there is um, a pretty extensive book that we use when we're uh, psychologists treating clients. Uh, It's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, Mental Health. And within that that very lengthy book, um, there is no such recognized mental disorder as post-traumatic abortion syndrome, which you sometimes will hear people who are arguing against abortion use that term as though it's a real and recognized disorder. And there's just simply not any recognizable data or um, science behind the idea that it, um, that women who have an abortion will have a, tr- a post-traumatic reaction. And actually what's, um, what I'm really interested in, which I think is really bears pointing out is that there is, however, a recognizable mental health disorder called post 
postpartum depression, uh, which I think most people are pretty familiar with. Um, and actually, it's very common. And depression is common response to giving birth. So our anxiety disorders, which go up after birth. But actually, pregnancy itself is associated with a higher risk of uh, both depression and anxiety disorders. So it's interesting that there's so much legislation, so many efforts to try to convince women, pressure women not to have abortions based on all of these myths and this misinformation and uh, really a misuse, I think, of science, but very little concern from most people about the idea of, of actually continuing a pregnancy, which is physiologically and psychologically much, much riskier than, than terminating a pregnancy in the first trimester of pregnancy. Absolutely. And I know that I was reading in the article you published on the, uh, and you were talking about like the title is Reproductive Right and Informed Consent. You were talking about the idea, and I hear it a lot that people think, you know, a woman is not like whole until she gives birth. And so, you know, kind of like tying the entire identity of the women into motherhood. So can you talk about that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's very, it's really interesting to see the shifts in the last many decades, with the, especially within the U.S., but I think you could argue this in uh, many other industrialized countries as well, that there's been an increase, really, um, I don't know, almost all-consuming all passion for, for having children and what it means, particularly for women. You know, I guess it helps to have a little bit of a historical context. So, at the beginning of the 1900s, uh, most people, uh, most couples had, you know, around seven children thereabouts on average. And the idea of having children then when we had, you know, far fewer means to control reproduction was really more as a result of living in, a, in a, an agrarian society, a farming community where children were seen as um, helps to families in terms of economic uh, well-being. And, and this idea of uh, parenting is sort of this romantic notion that I really think we have now really wasn't seen in the popular culture. Now, you know, I certainly wouldn't advocate returning to those times for many reasons. And fortunately, there were also efforts within the, um, the 20th century, especially to start uh, having protections for children and, and, and so forth, you know, labor protections so that children weren't um, being exploited um, in terms of uh, work and economics. But what ended up happening between that and then um, the surge of being able to um, control our reproduction, which really happened in the latter part of the 20th century with the advent of the birth control pill and many other forms of contraception that became available to us between the early 1960s and, and present time, was that people, when they had the ability to control their fertility, started having far fewer children. Of course, now the, um, the average number of children that most people will have is two, or sometimes even a little less, depending on um, what part of the country or which country we're looking at. And so what ended up happening was children became sort of less economically uh, necessary. And in fact, they became more of an economic liability because they were no longer contributing to a family's livelihood or their income, but rather, you know, their children, having children is very costly. So even now, um, the uh, cost of raising a child in a middle-class home in, a not, in not a very expensive part of the country, in other words, not the East Coast or the West Coast where it's even higher, but it, just an average cost is about $250,000 from birth to about age 17, not including the cost of attending university. 
And so I think there have been other authors who've written about this as well, and I think in really powerfully persuasive ways, that because children were no longer seen as an economic necessity, people still needed to sort of have a justification or a rationale for having them. And so in the last few decades in particular, we've seen an all-out fascination um, with having children. Um, you know, I think that that'll probably be very familiar to your listeners, that there's, um, there are blogs and groups and media accounts and, you know, people get obsessed with stars having children and themselves having children and other people having children. And, you know, it's, it's quite a, I guess it feels like a long journey from, you know, the sitcom I Love Lucy that was popular <laughs> in, the, in the last century where they couldn't stay pregnant on TV to now, you know, you have whole shows that document every bit of somebody's pregnancy and childbirth and so forth. So, I think it's been a really interesting shift that I don't always think is positive for people. Um, and I think we have some pretty compelling data to show that as well, um, that an obsession with having children and the, the rise of the helicopter parents, that doesn't really serve anyone's best interest, which is, is unfortunate. Yeah, and I was like, I didn't think about it until I was reading your article about like, you know, the shift because it's so subtle that I was, I was feeling the same thing as you were sharing with us that like, you know, there's suddenly we have all this kind of like focus on the importance of having children, which is great if you want to have children, if that's a lifestyle that we, we would like, but almost kind of romanticizing it. Right, exactly. I think one of the things that, one of the things I hear that I always find sort of curiously disturbing is when people start saying, people say things now like, I fell in love with my baby um, or I'm in love with my child. And I know that that that's the intent behind it is to just express that somebody has a lot of, you know, warm feelings toward their children. But if you think about it, that's language that again, historically, and when we think about what that phrase means to be in love, that we reserve for our romantic partners. And so it's just interesting how that's been co-opted by, um, you know, a segment of the population and I think in some ways that has really real world consequences for couples who have children and about the dynamic that happens when a couple adds a baby to their family. Yes. And I think just like talking about that, the, like, you know, the implication of having a children, the impact it has on your life and kind of like in your well-being. And again, it, it can be a wonderful gift, but I, I don't hear people talking about all the possible consequences and the price that like women are paying because of the pressure for them to have children. Right, definitely. Yeah, one other thing that I was curious about is that I'm always thinking about that how limiting women's reproductive rights might impact and influence their expression of sexuality. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that, again, I think gets lost in some of the rhetoric that I'm so glad to have the opportunity to discuss with you today is the idea that planning pregnancies, which is what we're talking about when we talk about reproductive justice, the ability to plan um, our uh, reproductive lives with intentionality, um, planning pregnancy is actually very healthy for both women and their children. Um, and there's lots and lots of data about that as well. So one of the things we know is that prohibiting abortion or limiting abortion doesn't stop abortion, right? It makes it go underground. Um, it leads to unhealthy and unsafe abortion. And in fact, um, although we still have the legal right to abortion in many places and certain states in particular, that right has been so chipped away at that we're already seeing some of the consequences. So I guess contrary to what people 
um, who argue against abortion might wish, restricting access to abortion doesn't make women have fewer abortions, for sure. And it certainly doesn't make people have sex less often or have less sex. And again, I think that's probably much to somebody's chagrin. Uh, they're not happy about that. So it really has mostly um, all adverse effects on women's sexuality and women's reproductive lives and really their broader health and well-being. So for, so for one thing, we know that there are, uh, are medical recommendations that, that couples uh, space out their pregnancies about 18 months apart if they're going to have more than one child. And so limiting or eliminating access to reproduction automatically um, introduces a potential risk um, because then pregnancies can't be spaced in ways that allow um, women um, and their families time to recover um, and time to acclimate to the new child that's been added to the family. And we also know um, with some pretty grave consequences when reproductive rights are curtailed. And so even already we're seeing, I've been reading some interesting things about um, really sobering statistics that, again, and particularly in states where abortion is being uh, particularly attacked, we're seeing, uh, for example, a rise in do-it-yourself abortions. Um, oh my God. And wow. um, even they, yeah, yeah, they even track that. Like they can, they, you know, look at Google searches and they have lots of ways of estimating that. And so, yeah, they're seeing that women are getting online and looking for medications they can buy that um, may not otherwise be available to them or might be too hard to get. But even things like um, inserting objects into um, some, into one's cervix to try to, cause an abortion, and even things like striking oneself or having a partner strike oneself in an, in an attempt to end a pregnancy. So really sobering and scary consequences when abortion is limited. I think people think that because Roe, uh, Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973, that that safeguarded somehow uh, women's access to abortion in the United States. Um, but really, the instant it was passed in 1973, there were efforts, uh, and oftentimes very successful efforts, to chip away at that. So even though we still have the right to abortion legally, in some places it's all but impossible to be able to exercise that right, which then calls into question whether or not it really is a protected right. I think for a lot of women, particularly vulnerable women, women of color, poor women, rural women, and young women, women under 18, um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a right that's really in, in jeopardy at this point. Yeah, and you were talking about unhealthy and unsafe termination and abortion, which is so true. I remember, again, I'm coming from the culture that, like, you know, there was lots of restrictions on abortion. I remember that the trauma of, like, you know, young teens trying to figure out the ways, and it's not usually, again, sexuality is a natural part of life, so it's not necessarily people not going to, it's not like they're not going to engage in the sexual behaviors, there's just going to push people, and as you said, young women, people with low access or no access to engage in the behaviors that those behaviors can cause long-term trauma and anxiety and depression. Right, exactly. Um, and it, it just has, a, I think, sort of a ripple effect. And I think the other thing that is the ultimate effect of limiting you know, vulnerable women's access to reproductive health, right? Because if we're women of means, if we're privileged women, if we're white women, if we're women are, who are middle class or beyond, we'll, we'll be able to access abortion because we can travel to do that and have other means of accessing it. But I think the ultimate really scary consequence of limiting abortion, particularly for vulnerable women, is it keeps, um, it keeps women who are already vulnerable 
from from being able to make real change and have the kind of lives that we would hope for them and more importantly that they want for themselves. So it keeps women poor and and disempowered um, in ways that are I think are troubling. Yeah, and you were talking about how it's a, like a slow process, like it's just like like legislators they're chipping away from women's rights and reproductive rights slowly. So what are some of the ways that people can take action on that? I'm big on social justice, and I think we have a voice mm-hmm. to exercise that. Oh, absolutely. I'm very glad you asked about that as well. Well, one of the things that's so important is to, to be educated and to correct the misinformation that, that many, many people without, you know, clearly without their consent have received. So first, I think we need to educate ourselves and I, and I mean everyone in that because there are even studies that show, you might have uh, remembered reading about this in the paper I sent you, um, there are even studies that show that even medical professionals, um, people who specialize in reproductive health are sometimes uh, misinformed themselves. Um, I just am finishing up a study that looked at what psychologists know about abortion and, um, and it was also pretty grave because we don't have any standards in the field of psychology for ensuring that we include reproductive health and um, and issues within the curriculum. There's nothing that says that any program that trains therapists or psychologists has to do that. And in fact, I believe that most don't. That's what my study has shown most recently. So the first thing is just to become educated and to make sure that we are able to discern, you know, good science that's been peer-reviewed and published in respectable outlets and academic sources versus the kind of information that somebody can find if all they do is look online or if they happen to um, go to a crisis pregnancy center. um, And there's lots of research that shows that crisis pregnancy centers, which are plentiful right now um, and have been the source of tremendous federal funding, um, particularly before the Obama years, that misinformation seeps into the culture um, and it leads to all these myths. So I would say the number one thing that all of us can do is to seek out intentionally seek out good information. Um, and I would be happy to send you additional resources if that would be helpful to you, um, to your listeners. But beyond that, I, you know, there's wonderful grassroots um, causes that we can access and become a part of. Um, I live in Texas and we have a wonderful organization in Texas called the Texas Equal Access Fund. Um, and all that they do is raise money for low-income women who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford abortion. And there's lots of those kinds of organizations around the country and beyond. I like the work that the Guttmacher Institute does. I think that's a great institute to get um, involved with and sign up for their alerts and things like that. Um, Planned Parenthood, um, NARAL. So availing ourselves of these kinds of organizations, many of which, you know, have opportunities for volunteering and and certainly benefit from the donations that we make to them. So those are some of the things that we can do. You know, if somebody was interested in getting even even more involved, um, I was a clinic escort for a while um, years ago. So you become someone who um, is identifiable and um, will just help safely lead a woman to to a clinic if she needs to access it, particularly amid a lot of protesters who are sometimes really uh, nasty and try to discourage women from accessing clinics. So I guess there's a lot of different things that we can do. Oh, I love that. I was cute. I could not like uh, keep take notes <laughs> fast enough as you were talking. <laughs> and I love to uh, get the resources. And you were talking about like, you know, even lack of good education and about like in a topic about like pregnancy, termination and those kind of things in higher education. 
I went to school, like I went my graduate program here in California and we didn't have that. And I remember for my postdoc, part of our shift was to work at like ER and getting the calls and those kind of things. And I remember that it was like seven of us. We, and you know, with working at ER, you see range of kind of things. And I never felt kind of as less prepared as a day that we had this woman, she contacted us, she was stressed, she realized she was pregnant and she wanted to think about options. And I think like seven of us, we were looking at each other, we felt equipped to help all kind of stress and a crisis, but I don't feel like we necessarily had good solid information the same way that we had so like, when it comes to this topic. Yes, I, one of the things that um, I really would like to continue to devote my career to is advocating quality access to um, comprehensive sex education, which um, is something that we really have a dismal record of in the U.S. And when I say comprehensive sex education, I mean, of course, medically and scientifically accurate and also a lifespan approach. So there's very little, unfortunately, good sex education in K-12, very little. And that concerns me and beyond, like you and I are talking. So even in um, higher education and graduate programs and graduate programs that train people like you and me to work with people who might have questions and concerns about planning their reproductive lives. And, and I think we do a real disservice when we don't have those kind of standards in place for the, our, our community for, to have an educated populace. I think it just it's it's problematic on so many levels. So that's something I can I plan to continue to uh, work really hard for is making this kind of information much more accessible. And also, I think kind of going hand in hand with that is things like what you're doing, having this program, having information available and destigmatizing it because I think that's a big part of the broader issue with sex, right? Is that we're not supposed to talk about it. It's not okay to talk about it. Um, we have a whole set of euphemisms and ways that we skirt around it so we don't actually have to say that we're having sex or we're not talking about body parts and reproduction and things like that because there's still such a taboo for, for so many people um, about talking about sex openly. So um, my hope is that that's something that, that I will continue to fight for. It's really important. Absolutely. And I can definitely hear your passion. So, and I bet many of our listeners would like to kind of contact you, get some resources. What would be the best way of contacting you? Oh, sure. Um, I would be happy to be reached by email. And my email address is lowercase d like Deborah, M like Mary, O-L-L-E-N like Nancy, at mail, M-A-I-L dot T-W-U dot E-D-U. That's the best way to reach me. Um, and I would be happy to hear from folks and, and share resources and, and maybe even hear about things that um, you and your listeners are doing um, in order to, to advance some of these causes and, and make a, a healthier world for people sexually. Thank you. And again, please feel free to send me any resources that you have so I can share it with our audience in the show notes. Again, this is a topic I feel very excited and passionate to talk about because of the lack of information. And I truly appreciate it that you took time out of your busy schedule to give us those great, helpful information. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Mullen. She's definitely a wealth of great information in the field of women's reproductive rights. 
and I got so many great ideas about the steps that I can take in order to support this uh, wonderful and important cause. And you know, as she was talking about this, I was wondering that, well, this is something that it is a value for me. Women's right is something I feel very passionate about, but it's important also to, as I shared during the interview, to do things, to take action. So I'm definitely going to look into the articles she sent me and also contribute to this wonderful cause and encourage you to also to take even one small action, even if it means to talk about it with someone that you feel struggling in order to help this, uh, help us move forward in this area. Again, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy listening to this show, make sure you're subscribing on iTunes so you get the, each episode downloaded to your device on a weekly basis. I'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.